The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. Right when you thought it was safe, he's back. Last week, I, as you notice, I've changed my shirt. The reason I do this is because it's how I tell the different live videos apart. I know at some point I'm going to run out of shirts that are distinctive, but it's just, it's how I do it. I'm getting old. It's really hard for me to figure it out. And what I want to look at today is the basic principle of the faith by which dominion is established. Now I realize um, I still have some food to eat here. Ah, crap. Sorry. Preachers aren't supposed to say crap. I'm going to pour myself another glass, and we'll see if we make it through. For those of you who are only watching this, this is cryptic. I don't recommend it, but it's decent. Okay. A while back, I gave this same talk, and it's bothered me that it needs to be tweaked with. And I'm the sort of person that before you ever see anything that I've printed, I've probably rewritten it. 15, 20, 30 times. I just, and it still doesn't come out right. And so as soon as I gave this, I realized there was a dozen ways that I wanted to do it differently. But this is what I'm doing. This is the basic principle of faith by which dominion is established. Principle is singular on purpose. There is only one principle of our faith. Everything else grows from that. If you don't have that principle, it doesn't matter what you're growing from it. It's going to go off the track somewhere. But it goes beyond that. Today, what I want to look at is the fascinating phenomenon. It's like an epoxy. You know, you, you mix two non-sticky substances together and they create a third and it's like super glue. It's not a perfect analogy, but you'll see how a serious commitment to the sufficiency of Scripture, that's the basic principle, in one tube, when wed to what the apostles did when they gathered together for worship, which seems a world apart. You know, one is an idea, the sufficiency of Scripture. That's, honestly, that's an idea. That's, that's not a concrete thing. It's an idea about a concrete thing. And the other is a concrete thing, a bunch of people together in a room doing something. That's, that's concrete. Now, when you mix these two together in each tube, and you wed what the apostles did when they gathered together for worship with the other tube, uh, which is the sufficiency of Scripture, you're going to discover that an unexpected result takes place, and that is how to deal with sin, with error, and with division. And it's not obvious when you look at either one of them alone. And if you've ever fiddled with epoxies, as I have, it's like you pick up this and it's kind of gooey you pick up that and it's kind of it's like what's here and you put them together 
Another example is one of the reasons why when people fly, they check their bags for different bottles of fluids and you have to give all your hair stuff away or whatever. The reason they're doing that is there's lots of substances which taken on their own are interesting. They do stuff, but you put them together and you can blow up a whole airplane. That's what these doctrines are like. And that's, that's what I want to bring together for you tonight is the sufficiency of scripture with how the apostles led in worship. Now, Jesus led in worship, but how the apostles following in his footsteps did it. And how it deals with error, sin, and division. Discipline in the church would be the traditional way of saying it. <clears throat> the order that grows when you put the sufficiency of Scripture together with the worship of the apostolic church transforms God's people in a way which is only dimly aped by the familiar pagan forms of government, which we experience in the world all around us and have since Genesis 4. And uh, the discipline of worship which are handed down to us in our books of church order and the traditions of men ever since men rejected the apostolic order instituted by Christ. Now, I, I really don't think our, our fathers in the, the church were saying, I know, let's get rid of these apostles. They weren't doing it that way at all. They were like, how are we going to survive? This ain't working. Let's, I can't wait for the Holy Spirit to do something. Okay, I am the bishop. You're the bishop. Whoever's with us is in. Whoever's not with us is out. And so the church as the doorway, that is the, the government of the church as the doorway into the kingdom of God was established. You know, it doesn't matter that Jesus said that he's the door. These are the door to the door. You know, so many Protestants are like into like, ah, them stupid Catholics, they pray to saints. What good does that do them? And then they turn right around. They set up a hierarchy of church leaders. What are those church leaders, if not people who are the doorkeepers of the door? They're the door you have to go through to get through to the door of Jesus. And you can say, hey, I've already gone through the door of Jesus. And they say, whoa, 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 nobody goes through that door until you've talked to us. And so here they are saying, what do you mean praying to the saints? You're supposed to pray to us. Brothers and sisters, nobody says it that way. But when you just step back and look at the function of how elders function in the modern church, you'll see that they're no different from praying to the saints. Okay? You're, you're, you're praying to the elders saying, oh, that's what happened to me. Could you please think that it's okay enough to get baptized? Okay enough to come to the Lord's table? Who's your elder? <laughs> Who's your daddy? Okay, what I want to do is unleash these doctrines and see where they take us. Unfortunately, I've already had a glass of wine, as you can already tell. And I really shouldn't try to speak when my natural sense of inhibition, which isn't that profound in the first place, is worn down. But we'll see where it takes us. Now, God's people are those who have been defined by God's word down through the ages. They're created and sustained by the Holy Spirit speaking through the word of God, correcting errors that at any given time, have plagued the ministry and peace of his people. If you study church history, you study all kinds of errors people made, and yet, wow, here you are studying those errors. I wonder how God managed to pull that off, all that error running around. His word and his spirit continued to correct and refine his people in the truth until his return. Now, though a tip of the hat is given to the work of the Holy Spirit and the sufficiency and the efficacy of scriptures, when the question of church government arises, there is the distinct impression 
that it has been the top-down power of sound and able bishops and elders who have through ecclesiastical force maintained the purity of the faith, the protection of the faithful, and the sifting of the true from the false. Now, the fact of the matter is this idea is as absurd as it is to give the pharaohs credit for the rise and fall of the Nile, even though for three millennia the pharaohs proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that they were its cause by going out each spring to perform the Nile Arise ritual, and then a month later returning to perform the Nile Fall ritual. That's 6,000 years of proof that these guys are making the Nile go up and down. Just go out and watch what they do. What other conclusion could a reasonable person draw who had never traveled a thousand miles to the head of the Nile and found out why the Nile rises and falls? You see, God's word, like the rains on the upper Nile, continues to sift out his people and establish them, even though the elders want the pharaohs want us to believe that it's their rituals of control, their labors as mere judges in church courts who peep and mutter as they coerce the congregation of God, uh, excuse me, judge and rule over the congregation of God, and are the, it's there that are the source of the advance of the church in the world. It's God's contention that his word continues to work more fully when we are free of those elders, when we, excuse me, when we free those elders up of all the extraneous table cleaning, administration, judicial tasks, as if they're the only judges in the church, when Paul explicitly said the least among you is a capable judge, when Paul explicitly says you will judge angels, are you not sufficient to judge these things? When Paul explicitly says, why didn't you judge him already? Fine, you need me to tell you, you get together and judge him, I'll join you. He says all those things, but no, 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 it's only the elders who have the judicial task. You know, if we can just free the elders up of all this, all this crap that has filled their life that is not their job, that the church in Jerusalem, the elders there, the, the, the apostles specifically rejected. And if elders would become men who would, if we would seek men as elders whose only passion is to disciple the congregation by making the truth of the word of God clear, applying it to their lives through prayer, teaching, example, worship, and prophecy, creating a body of people. If their only concern was to create a body of people, not coerce a body of people, not discipline a body of people as if they are the scourge of God, but creating a, a body of people who can do the work of the ministry, which includes judgment, which includes those trials that only the elders can do. How much more effective if every member of your congregation could on any given day do what today we think only the elders can do? A body of people who can do the work of the ministry far more effectively than a few elite heroes of the faith. And that they leave it to the Holy Spirit to establish and remove the dross in the church, the error in the church, the sin in the church over time. Now, doctrinal definition is important. Don't take anything I say. You know what? I am Trinitarian. I Just read the Westminster Confession, Confession of Faith. That's me on the doctrines. Doctrinal definition is important, but in the long run, it depends on a committed knowledge of God's Word and the operational significance in the congregation of what it means. Now get this. What it means to be confident in our proceedings, that is the things we do, that God's Word is final. 
What does it mean to believe that God's word is final and the things that we do, it's not the things that we do that are final? First of all, it needs no other source. God's word needs no other support or authority or proof. It's final. Final means no one can understand God's word apart from the Holy Spirit speaking through it, using its entirety as the context and opening their eyes and ears and mind and heart. I'm just quoting John Owen at that point. It is complete, unique, and finished from Genesis to Revelation. Nothing is to be added to it or taken from it. True doctrine is that which is found in every verse of Scripture whose meaning is self-consistent, such as the doctrines of Scripture, the Trinity, the dual nature of Christ, the creation, the fall, the man, uh, the, the creation, the fall, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of God, atonement, law, grace, prophet. Just pick up any, you know, the, can, the canons of Dort, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Heidelberg Canon. Just pick up any of those and you'll get that, Okay. True doctrine, all those things I just mentioned, is that which is found in every verse of Scripture. It's the context. It, 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 it is what Scripture gives the context and teaching of. All Scripture proclaims Jesus Christ, his work, and his plan for all time. Because Jesus is God, the Son, slain before the foundation of the world. He's the reason for it all. He's not just the reason for the season. He's the reason for anything. He's the Son slain before the foundation of the world of which he is its creative architect and his incarnation is becoming flesh is the whole reason he created the world so God could have a place to become a creature. That's why he did it. I mean, if you want to know what intrigues God, it's him sitting there thinking, huh, I wonder if I can create something and then become I who am infinite, eternal, unchangeable in all things, wisdom, power, glory, blah, blah. Okay, I who am all those things, omnipotent, I can become a creature. Huh. So he runs this past, you know, the Godhead argues about it for a while. How do we do this? Do we do it this way? Do it that way? They come up with a plan before the foundation of the world. Theology's real, man. So is God. All scripture proclaims Jesus Christ, his work, and it, it, it kills me when people say, oh, you're just trying to find Jesus in everything. Dude, who, who, who do you think Jesus is? He is in everything. His work, his plan for all times, because Jesus is God, the Son, slain before the foundation of the world, of which he is its creative architect. And his incarnation, his becoming flesh, a human being, is the reason why God created all this. It's not incidental to it. Now, this sufficiency of Scripture in no way contradicts the fact that God's revelation, his word to us, hasn't ceased. It's because the rule by which he intends us to judge the earth has ceased, and that is the context, Genesis to Revelation, of what we believe and say and argue about and say, does it apply this way or that way? That's the authority. And because that's the authority, it's because his finished written word is the measure of all things, anyone believes or says, that's why we have a foundation today to be confident that as God continues to speak to us, he's not adding to that word, but rather he says, you know, you can't always tell if it's me or some spirit, so try the spirits to see whether they be of God. 
so we can be confident that it's God applying his word in any other gift, prophecy, teaching, or revelation. It's the whole point of the sufficiency of Scripture is that God can continue talking without you wondering, oh, is it God telling me to sacrifice my son or is it someone else? No, Scripture is real clear about that. You don't sacrifice your son. It's not God saying it to you. Let me see. Is there God telling me that I can uh, be saved by something other than Jesus Christ, like obeying the law of Moses? And Paul says, and the word of God says, no, though an angel from heaven preaches a different gospel, he will be accursed. Though I, Paul of Tarsus, the apostle, preaches a different gospel, I should be accursed. You see, the sufficiency of scripture means it's okay for God to talk. We don't have to create a theology that says, shut up, God. You've already said everything you need to say. Just be content to be up there in heaven, you freaking deist. Excuse me, you, you may think I'm being blasphemous. That's, well, it might be the wine talking, but that's precisely what the concept of the cessation of the gifts is teaching. That is the blasphemy. Shut up, God. Who are you? <clears throat> okay, moving right along. Where these things are, where that, that is where the authority of Scripture is the firm conviction, it follows that the Scripture, not the interpretation or decrees of men, is the final court of appeal for all thoughts, doctrines, philosophies, controversies, freedom, government, and worship. Therefore, we can live confidently in the knowledge that it's not our job to sift God's people for him, using, using us special elders as a court, but rather by the word of our testimony, by the blood of the Lamb, and that we convene church courts to examine people to see whether they really believe in God, you have overcome the world. Now, I have a feeling most of you know enough about Scripture to know that I just changed that. How do you overcome the world, elders? By the word of our testimony, by the blood of the Lamb, and that you do not love your life unto death. The apostolic task is to create a congregation who can make the terms of the sieve, the word of God, that he uses to sift the world. His word, as clear as God grants the gifting and light, and be confident that the real sorting process of God will reveal and establish his people and cull out and eliminate the rest over time. Our job is clarity and ethics, that is the law of God, and sound judgment, that is how it applies. The quick word for that is ethical judicial. Took me about two years to figure out what they meant when they said ethical judicial. Because they used it like just like they say ethical judicial, blah, 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 blah. And I say, what the heck are you talking about? God's job is the executive task of sorting the sheep from the goats, not yours, and the wheat from the chaff, not yours. And you may say, wait a second, this is what elders have always done. This is what no no no. Go, go, <laughs> go read the New Testament, and underline every passage that says the elder's job is to hold a court to find out who's guilty and innocent. And don't come back and say, well, how about I'm Hymenaeus and Alexander? Good example. Paul didn't hold a court. He was having problems with Hymenaeus and Alexander. He says, I have turned them over to Satan that they may not learn to blaspheme against God. And he goes on with his life. He didn't hold a church court. He did what any Christian could do who understands what the fullness of the Holy Spirit, along with Matthew 18, gives the church the power to do. Not the elders, the church. Oh, by the way, elders have that power too. But they have that power with the church. <clears throat> and by the way, God, 
will separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, in spite of our best efforts to take his place in the task and to hold the courts to do what clearly God isn't quite competent in doing. And more so, that is, the sifting will go on more so, when we rest in his competence to do only what <clears throat> he can do and do the things that he gave us to do, which is single-mindedly focus on raising every believer you meet to as high as they can go in terms of their understanding of how to understand and apply the Word of God. See, Scripture is always going to find God's people. You've got to be confident of that. It is the grid which sifts his people out through all mankind, through all millennia. The elder's job is not to be the examiner and the judge of God's people as if that is the door to the sheepfold. Rather, he is faithful to teach God's word in and out of season. He is to faithfully contrast it with error, even personally, your error. But he's not to erect himself as a court to pass judgment on those who are in error, except to pronounce their error and pray against it and warn them of it and argue with them and persuade them and reach out to them. And perhaps if no other way can be found to convince them, and the matter is serious enough, with the judgment of the congregation, whom he is discipled to be confident in such things, that congregation with the elder sends them forth to form their own congregation or to go out on their own with either our blessing or dire warning, but always with our prayer. See, we separate in faith that God will in time, through his word, sift the error out along with those who shaped it, and in humility realize that it might be we who are sifted out. Only the rule in the church, and by the way, I'm going to be talking about that a lot more. I realize that's a bit ambiguous, but that's exactly where I'm going in the long run here. <clears throat> Only the rule in the church of the least of these sufficient, is, is, of the least of these, if, if we just take Jesus seriously, he said, rule with the least of these, not with the greatest of these. They constantly came to him and said, Jesus, pick the greatest. Why wouldn't they? How else do you run an organization? What idiot picks the most incompetent? Come on, Jesus, pick the greatest. Who are you? Only the rule in the church of the least of these is sufficient for the kind of discernment that it takes to be able to pull off Jesus's program. The greatest, you see, always believes that any power they have is God's authorization to them to demand that everyone be part of their kingdom as they define it in full confidence that it must be God's kingdom. Why else are they elders at all? God clearly saw that I got his kingdom down pretty pat. So you better agree with me or, or to hell with you. That actually is what excommunication is. There's only one schism, and that is to depart from the conviction that God's word is final and that whatever doctrine is found there must be believed and obeyed until clearer light springs from the same word. That's why we argue about it. We're looking for that clearer light. If we don't find it, then you stay where you are. There is no light, even if one's doctrine is at many points correct, if you are not committed to that light coming from Scripture. Ecclesiastical courts are not sources of that light. Or God would have said so, and he would have made courts an explicit and exclusive part of an elder's job. Description. He did neither of these things, and in fact, explicitly warned against that error. You know, people say, well, you know, the elders at the gate, 
That's what the elders in the church are, passing judgment. Well, the elders, uh, you know, in the synagogue, it's a synagogue gathering where you get together, you read some Moses, and you explain it and stuff like that. No. Jesus specifically said <clears throat> that the way the world has been doing it, includes those elders in the gate, is not the way he wants you to do it. A great error among churches committed to the full authority of Scripture is that they grant the same authority to their understanding of Scripture. But you see, the profoundest commitment to Scripture doesn't guarantee that any particular doctrine that seems to come from it, you know, that I explained from it, is true. It doesn't guarantee it. Just because I say, hey, this must be true. I believe in Scripture. No. Because you believe in Scripture, yeah, I think this is true in what it teaches, but I don't think that necessarily I'm 100% correct on this. And I'm willing to be open to what somebody has to say. I'm not open to something that's not scriptural, but I am open to something that somebody says, well, look at this first, look at that first. Let's talk about this. If it's true, though, there's no guarantee. Let's say, I, but it, let's say I've got 100% correct. There's no guarantee that it is therefore correctly applied to practice. I've applied it correctly to what we ought to do. Or... To systematically to the body of doctrine. I may not have it fitting in right. It may be twisting some stuff. This in no way is a lack of confidence in the truth or admitting a paralyzing doubt that keeps us from any useful task. Oh, who am I? I'm always going to commit errors and sins, therefore I shouldn't even try. No, it's not that. What it does is it tells us be humble. Be bold, but be humble in your boldness. In the face of truth, recognize the difference between you and God. Seek in God's word always. And that's the reason why, and again, I'm going to shift gears here. That's the reason why you don't need to battle those you oppose to bitter division and hatred. However you might mask it and pious, do I not hate thee, those who hate thee, O Lord? Yea, I hate them with a perfect hatred. I'm just defending the truth. Okay, chill. Good for you. You're defending the truth. And by the way, defending the truth heatedly, that's cool. Jesus took a whip at one point and cleared the temple out. But it wasn't typical of the things Jesus did. It was atypical. And so, it, you know, fine. Get some heat. Get some, you know, cool. Remember, that's not reality check here. In days, years, and centuries to come, we might be found to be in error as much as our opponent. Rather, as year succeeds to year, we live by the serene confidence that God's word will weed through all the competing inter interpretations, including our own, and sustain the true and leave the rest to wither in the thin soil by the road and rocks. However lovely and healthy their or our first flowering might have seemed. That's the image from Matthew 13. It isn't the task of the, of the elders of the church to erect tribunals to sniff out and heresy. That's what my mother always used to do. Her job is to sniff out heresy and then to burn the heretic literally or figuratively it's the task of the church to teach the truth and live in such a way that the heretic is convicted from the heart or being unconvinced the heretic departs with our prayers not our bitter enmity look at first timothy see how paul tells timothy to deal with error contempt personal contempt against him sinful opposition notice how paul tells him to deal with it Seriously, find the courtroom in First and Second Timothy and Titus. Where separation is necessary, it can be with the full confidence that whether or not our side 
or the other side is God's servant today in 2,500 to 300 years, the world will know who spoke truly for Christ according to the word of God. It is for us to live in the fullness of what we by faith understand and pray for further understanding and grow as God gives us increase. And it is by the fruitful growth that God permits and God grants increase to his people and weeds their sterile enemies out. And so this is how you defeat opposition. It's how Paul did it. He didn't run around saying, oh man, there's another Judaizer. Better go argue with him. No, he confirmed to the whole church that what he was preaching was, was the gospel. And then he went out and won as many people to Christ as he could. And that's the vision of the church. This whole thing of like, we are the faithful few. I'm sorry. If you're the faithful few, then you aren't the faithful, excuse me. If you were the faithful few, then there's something seriously wrong. You know, this whole Baptistic, pardon me, my Baptist friends, this whole Anabaptistic, it's a historically Baptist position, that it's just going to be we few holding out against the world, losing everything because the gospel is impotent, because the Holy Spirit can't beat the world. And by golly, as, as, as we hold out, uh, Jesus comes and raptures us out. That's where this idea comes that being the faithful few is okay. No. It's not okay. You know what? If anybody could say it's okay, and there's none of us who could judge them for it, it would be the church in communist countries under persecution. It'd be the church in China today. It'd be the church in Cuba, North Korea. They could say, you know what? Keep your head down, mouth shut. But the church in China just issued a proclamation to the government calling it to submit itself to Jesus Christ. The church in China today doesn't see itself as a persecuted minority. It is. I mean, it understands the reality of, of what it is. But it sees itself as the church of Jesus Christ, full of the Holy Spirit, speaking to the nation. This whole idea that the church is hunkered down, waiting for defeat, sparked from time to time by a little shallow revival of emotion. It's the pit of hell. By contrast, we should be growing in the face of op This is how you bury the opposition. Lead people to Christ. So to start a congregation over a disputed term or a doctrine or a practice isn't schismatic. It's rather a good and healthy way to remain civil, not get distracted by the controversy, and focus on what you're there for, raising your congregation up to be the people of God, mature, unable to be blown about by wind of doctrines, engaging in the ministry of the Church of Jesus Christ. And you do that, and you'll be constantly growing and dividing. In prayer, each side for the other, trusting God to sustain his word, his way, however stiff the opposition. Now, so much for the authority of the word of God. You see it in this tube over here, the authority of the word of God. And that authority... tells you that you don't have to sift everybody out. God's been doing it. He's been doing it perfectly well without you. He works with his bishops and elders and that's cool. Just keep on doing what you're doing. It's kind of like, I remember the time that, um, oh, the story I've heard that Dwight L. Moody was getting ready to start one of his revival services and some local pastor was just praying and praying oh Lord and then just going on and on on his prayer and he stands up and he says 
While the good brother invokes God, we will begin to preach the word of God. So brother just stand right over there, and he stood up and started a sermon. You know, that's kind of how I viewed God is with a lot of the elders in the church who think that they're doing the business of the church, they're doing all this, and God is like, cool, guys, just do that right over there. I got some work to do over here because his word is continually sifting out the church, sifting out the world. So we're going to shift now from that concept of the Word of God being sufficient to judge the world and the Holy Spirit being powerful and sufficient to our form of worship. It's a real shift of gears. Now, in the upper room, the example of Jesus is not to discover the details, such as they reclined at dinner, so we should have low recliners installed in our meeting places, though I think that would improve a lot of churches I've been in. What is set forth in the upper room is not a ritual or a set of events to be imitated, and that is one of the regulative principles. Don't create a bunch of rituals or sets of events to be imitated. That ought to be a regulative principle. It's not don't do something the same way from time to time. But the point is, don't get sucked into ritual. Don't get sucked into thinking that this is the method of achieving God. This is the nickel I put in the spiritual slot. The upper room is a way of seeing what is important to God and living with those priorities when we come to him, individually and as people, as in, corporately. That's the regulative principle. No method of worship in and of itself pleases God or forces his blessing or presence. That should be clear from Genesis 4. Abel gets all up, excuse me, Cain gets all upset that Abel's acceptable and he's not. Why, God? I put my nickel in the slot. Why did he get the Coke and I didn't? I'm pretty old. None of you have probably ever gotten a Coke for a nickel. Probably never gotten anything for a nickel. <clears throat> But God just isn't seeking those who, who will worship with impressive technique and form. He's speaking those who will work, worship in spiritual spirit and in truth. That may include some impressive technique and form, but it's not the technique of the form that amounts to a pile of dog. Almost, okay, moving right along, almost any form of worship that does not incorporate sin can please God. But none requires his blessing, even if he blessed them in the past, even if they are otherwise beyond objection. He doesn't have to bless anything. And no form of worship lacking the spirit and truth from the heart of the worshiper can be acceptable. In fact, even if you have that sincerity, it doesn't make it acceptable. It's the Holy Spirit, the spirit and truth. Some ways of worshiping, though blessed in the past, are not going to continue in God's blessing, such as Samuel worshiping in the high places in Israel. That didn't continue in God's blessing. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, human sacrifice. That's not going to get God's blessing. Well, Abraham, let me see. Abraham obeyed God and took his kid out on the No. Or a very popular one these days is the return to the Mosaic Temple and the purification simple is if somehow following those aspects of God's law is going to purify you. So, too, it is worth noting that Jesus was not deterred or bothered by a lack of focus in his listeners, whether it was the crying of children, delaying the start of a sermon, and the mothers coming up, bless me, bless me. That didn't bother Jesus. bothered the crap out of his disciples, but it didn't bother him. In fact, at that point, he got mad at them and said, let the children come to me. It's, it's one of the two or three times in the Bible that Jesus, that it's recorded that Jesus gets mad at people. That's one of them. You might say the book of Revelation is, a, is another, but I wasn't including that. I meant his earthly ministry. 
You know, the arguing of his disciples, carrying on and not paying attention to him, even on the night of his betrayal and death, didn't make him mad, didn't get him upset. See, he was confident that the Holy Spirit and his word would penetrate as necessary to accomplish his will in the earth in his Father's time. You know, if Jesus was confident about that, shouldn't you be? Shouldn't I be? The position people are in may be improved by this or that setup, whether orderly rows or random movable chairs or no seating at all, even though different seating formats are more conducive to different outcomes, none of them guarantee or make impossible a godly outcome. You can't say, well, all our pews face the same direction, so how can we please God this way? That's no excuse. And you can't say, well, all of our seating is movable, and man, we do the agape meal, and, and surely God must come out of our pumpkin patch. We're the most sincere. Well, Jesus really isn't the great pumpkin. But when we look at what Jesus was doing, he himself, there was lying around on the floor, or about six inches off the floor, for a good piece of that last worship service in the upper room, and the rest of his disciples were sprawling there with him. One so disorderly as to be lying there with his head on Jesus' chest. And in the middle of all this confusion, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, Peter is like giving him hand signals. Hey, psst, psst, John, John, hey, who is it? Me? Is it you? Who? It's probably Judas. I don't know. Who do you think it is? They're doing hand signals to each other so that Jesus won't notice that he's trying to get John to ask Jesus the question who it is, but they, Jesus finally figures it out. Hey, you know, i got to ask who it is. And so Jesus says, okay, I'll tell you who it is. It's the guy whom I'm going to dip. And he gives it to, to Judas, and he says, okay, what's we ever going to do? Do quickly. And Judas leaves. And it says, none of them knew where Judas was going. Really? Are they stupid? No, they're not stupid. It's, there is so much stuff going on in the room. That's what, have you ever been in a room with lots of close friends who have been going through all kinds of stuff and there's a lot of tension there in Jerusalem? You know, they, they, there's a lot of tension down there. They didn't want to be there. And they're just talking and carrying on. They're not paying attention. When did Jesus, you know, tap the glass? Hey, hello, attention. I have some announcements to make to you. Uh, by the way, the Son of Man will become betrayed as it is written of him, but woe unto those uh, who, by whose hand it comes. No, Jesus was just right there, and he was cool and didn't bother him that nobody followed what was going on. You see, them lying there in that position was not to show us the best position to be in, but rather to show us the utter irrelevance of position in Jesus' estimation of whether in the upper room or throughout his ministry things were going the way they ought to go. There was so much lack of focus in the room that they didn't even get who was going to betray him, even though he told him directly. Not only that, there were six, eh, not six, I got to correct that. There were uh, about three, four chapters worth of material. I just corrected that's a nice thing about reading off the screen. Worth of material, he said that only John recorded. Only John got it. Now, if I were God, I would say, you know, I, I think I'd really, really rather have more people paying attention. Could you guys please pay attention to me? Hey, I'm God. Pay attention. If God himself was not concerned with that, why have we designed our entire worship services around forcing everybody to be quiet as if that's solemn? Well, 
Let's get back to Jesus. He was most comfortable with an environment that was relaxed in general and self-focused. And by that, I don't mean focused on yourself. I mean, when you saw something worth focusing on, you focused on it. When there was something of sufficient importance to a person to make focusing worth their while, they focused. He was very comfortable with that. Something he never did was force anybody to focus on him. Whatever Christians do in their meetings that they think needs everyone's attention, realize that God himself was not concerned when his friends, the apostles, didn't pay attention and missed stuff. So too, Christian worship should not be formed around the artificial times of externally imposed, total, undistracted attention. There's a baby crying. Would you get him out of the room? We, we have nurseries for those. I don't know what they are. That's true. Yeah, by the way, nobody ever says it that way, okay? Nobody ever says it that way. But if I were the pastor of the church, I would treat it the exact same way as I do my coffee shop. I've had people come up and complain to me in the coffee shop. You know, this, this kid's kind of distracting us and it's kind of running around. And it's like, and I just looked at him and said, brother, don't get me wrong. There's plenty of coffee shops in Asheville. In fact, Asheville's crawling with them. I really recommend you go to a coffee shop that hates kids and you won't have any problem. Around here, you're the problem, not the child. I never saw him again, but you know what? I don't think Jesus cares. <sighs> millstones, brothers, millstones. So few mis millstones, so many necks. So too, Christian worship should not be formed around artificial times of externally imposed, totally undistracted attention, as if this is a value in and of itself to draw as people nearer to God, but rather as people perceive value in a speaker. They should focus on it. As people perceive value in a singer, they should focus on him. And if, if, if what is said is sufficiently important, or what is sung, or what is prophesied, everyone is going to stop what they are doing and listening. You know what the best protections against a false prophet is? Everybody laughs and says, huh, that's Fred again. <laughs> he hadn't had a prophecy in 20 years. And they go back to whatever they were talking about, and Fred's out there prophesying on the corner, and nobody's paying a bit of attention to him. How do you deal with false prophets? See, those are people who aren't blown around by every wind of doctrine. That's Fred the false prophet. Okay. And see, this is how leadership rises naturally to the top. The, the people who have something to say, people stop and listen. When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. See, it's a free market of ideas that Jesus has set up in the upper room and the apostolic form of worship continues. It's a free market of ideas and spiritual values that God has designed for his people in all they do. Not merely economics, that's only one aspect of it, but in the entirety of life and in worship. He doesn't want a monopoly on one person. He wants, you know, everybody wants to go through Amazon. Why? Because they deliver. And that's how he wants his church to be. He wants everybody, trust, trust God, trust the Holy Spirit. Somebody delivers the good and goods in the Holy Spirit, people will listen. They'll pay attention. This is how it works in worship and fellowship. It does not improve the situation to impose a, a monopolistic, artificial order from the top down, which only confuses, as all monopolies do, as all government control does, it only confuses the truth and the understanding of what forces actually are at work, and it can only lead to bad decisions. 
The same tenor should mark true worship, that it is only as good as the heart of those involved is able to focus and attend to it, and it is not improved by external rules and rituals and constraints that attempt to coerce and that attempt to focus everybody on stuff. You know, if you got to go that hard to focus, it probably shouldn't be focused on. <clears throat> Galatians 5. I think Colossians, I'm not sure where, but it says, you know, these disciplines do nothing against the flesh. Such an environment of fellowship, worship, and teaching that is not cramped by time constraints promotes a natural resistance to making the strength and success of the church depend on the ability, excuse me, does not scratch all of that. Such an environment of fellowship and worship and teaching, three hours long, big meal, movable chairs, people focus on what they think is important. <clears throat> the teaching is, is geared to bringing people to make them immune or able to overcome the winds of doctrine. And it, it creates a natural resistance to making the strength and success of the church depend on the ability of organizers to organize an elite who are best able to focus the work and ministry of the church in addition to focusing its worship, because they're the ones who are the oratorical greats. They're the ones who are paid. They're the one. Such worship, that is the worship of the upper room, intrinsically, the way it's designed, resists the reduction of the faith to a bunch of rituals which enable those who really don't have the energy to worship God to be able to look like they're worshiping. It intrinsically resists the reduction of the faith to ritual, and by design it resists the rise of a priestly elder elite who rule through ritual. This said, nothing can overcome the immature desire of a congregation to be led by those who slap their faces and put rings in their noses as a sign of their submission and hats on their heads as a sign of their submission to authority in the church. Go take a look at 1 Corinthians 11.20. Paul says, Pfft. Should I have slapped you? Would that make you respect me? That's what the other leaders do. Now, one aspect of the upper room and of the church meeting in Acts is consistent with all Old Covenant worship from the beginning, from the food offered at creation to man in Genesis 1. Do, do you realize that the cultural mandate that be fruitful, multiply, food, that that's one verse, and there are about four verses after that about, and by the way, let's eat. Go, go read Genesis 1. It's, it's one piece. And God made them in his image. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And he said, and then he spends three times as many verses saying, and baby, let's eat. It's dinner time. <clears throat> anyway, I digress. From the food offered to creation at man, the two trees in the garden were all about getting something to eat. They revolve around food, not some ritual or lecture led by an expert or a priest. The synagogue was not a biblically ordained form of gathering, by the way. Though by the time of Christ, it was normal and accepted at the social structure. Uh, you could say the same as theater. Theater was not biblically ordained, and yet it was part of the social world out there. And after the apostles got moved past by the church, the entire church was designed around the theater. <clears throat> the synagogue was not the pattern for the first generation church anymore in the Greek theater t pagan temple worship was. They met in a more free-flowing journey from house to house, breaking bread, less structured by ritual and more ordered by the things going on in everybody's life, very similar to what we find in the upper room. 20 or 25 years into that first generation excitement, 
we find Paul addressing the order of worship in Corinth, what, 500 miles away in chapter 14 of the first, uh, Corinthians, first Corinthians. And it's remarkable how similar it is to what we see in Acts 1 through 5, where Philip's four virgin daughters are prophesying and the people go from house to house breaking bread. Abacus is out there saying his stuff. And once the worship was abandoned at the passing of the apostles, the church has sought a foundation for its practice ever since. And the best it's been able to do is point to the synagogue. There's nothing synagogal about what's going on there uh, in Acts 14. And the judicial function of elders at the city gate. Again, Jesus explicitly said, don't do it the Gentile way. Neither had a place in the teaching of Jesus. One was explicitly forgiven, uh, excuse me, forbidden, and it has no place in the New Testament. You can't find it in the New Testament. But after about 70, one of the proofs of the New Testament was written before 70 AD is you don't find the church government after 70 AD in the, in the New Testament. The early church abandoned everything and went straight to the pagan forms of civil and temple rule after 70 AD. I'm using 70 AD roughly, the end of the time of the apostles. And it went to the civil temple rule and to entertainment, the theater, as a way to organize their worship patterns around them, reducing everything to rituals that are easily performed and controlled by the priest, and everybody watches that priest baby. One of the things they added to it was the sermon. That was not normal either in the pagan world or in the Jewish world. Within 400 years, they had adopted the entire Roman government's civil and temple vocabulary to organize the many-layered church around divine Greek theater. But it was not so in the New Testament church. At this point, I'm dead serious. I'm dead serious. I'm pausing here for a reason. Not only to eat, but so you get a chance to just stop and think. Where in the New Testament are we told to get together, to watch a priest, perform rituals, Where in the, okay, so much for the Catholics. Where in the New Testament are we told to get together and watch an elder Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? I know Paul said do decent thing, everything decently in order. Where do you see decently in order meaning having one guy who gets paid to be the one who tells you, and by the way, if you're a Presbyterian, which in my opinion is the highest form of church government, that's the, well, it's the highest form of church government other than what's taught in scripture. Okay. Where do you find that, that, that the elders have the power of governing the worship? The elders have the power of deciding who takes communion. The elders have the power of deciding who gets baptized. The elders have the power of baptizing. The elders have the power of, of performing, the performing, officiating. What are they doing in communion? They say it's the Lord's table, but they treat it as if it's their own. Again, remember that picture. Jesus said... I am the door to the sheepfold. Anybody who comes through any other door isn't, is, is a robber who comes to steal and kill. The elders of the church say, oh, no, no, we're not another door. We're the door to the door. 
Come through us and then you can get to the Jesus door. But you got to go through the elder door first. That's what the priests were saying in, in, in Rome. What was the Reformation for? The whole fight in the Reformation was, is there a door into the grace of God other than Jesus Christ? And their answer is no. Well, except for the elders, of course. And we're right back there with the priest. What's the difference between a priest and an elder? None. Theologically, the Reformation had it right. Practically, they kept the high places in place. Now, it was not so in the New Testament church, though it remains the pattern to this day enshrined in all the books of, of church order. So let's look at the New Testament church. The characteristics of their service of worship were gather with everyone else who knows Jesus and eat a meal. In that environment, work through whatever needs working out, pray, sing, worship, teach, prophesy, rebuke. Paul says do it decently and in order. But what, if you read the context of that, decently and in order means, you guys, would you learn how to pay attention to what's going on? <laughs> okay, look, you don't have to, but could you discern the body, please? Decently in order didn't mean nail the pews to the floor, hire a guy to stand up front, see to it that nobody says anything during the service, except, of course, when I tell you to say something. That's the last thing Paul was talking about. If that's what he's talking about, he would say, and he, by the way, he had no problem trashing the Corinthians. He would have said, I am so grieved by what you think worship is. You've got to get yourself some elders. If you, if you notice all through Corinthians, there are no elders. Why do you think you're having problems? Get some elders, and they'll deal with the divorce issue. Get some elders. They'll deal with the guy sleeping with his, with his father's mother. Get some elders. They'll deal with the drunks at, at, uh, at, at uh, communion. Get some elders. They'll examine you. But you know, isn't it interesting? All the way through, he never, ever says an elder will solve your problem. His presupposition is the congregation is sufficient, as he said to the Ephesians, is sufficient to handle all the ministry of the church. The function of the elders is not to do it for them. They work through whatever needs working out. Pray, sing, worship, teach, prophesy, rebuke, exhort, encourage, censure, and love everyone there. And if needed, start a new congregation. The room should be filled with comfortable chairs, possibly recliners like Jesus used, or none at all. It doesn't matter. That, these things, but what's important is they can be pulled into any size or grouping as needed, from one or two or three to gather together for where I, you are gathered together by my name, I'm in your midst, as they turn the keys of heaven, <clears throat> to the whole group at once, to be addressed or sung to or prophesied at or censured by one person, <clears throat> or perhaps a debate. The very flexibility of the environment helps prevent the idea that we're here so that one person can turn himself into the only person we need to listen to. Not even Jesus. And by the way, it's not just that the pastor is the only person we need to listen to. It's by the book of church order. He is the only person who may control who you listen to. You really ought to read the book. You know, well, my church doesn't do it that way. Well, good. Good. But read the book. It tells you to do it that way. Go to your average Presbytery meeting. I've spent a lot of time at Presbytery meetings. They sure think it's done that way. I've dealt with a lot of discipline cases in Presbytery. Let me tell you the way the elders of the church think in the Presbyterian world. They think it's done that way. 
So just because you're out there as a guy in the congregation thinking, hey, man, we have this great flow. <laughs> the teeth are there. They just haven't bitten you yet. See, here's the thing. Not even Jesus himself organized by forcing people to listen to him. They listened and they followed because they wanted to, and many of them didn't. In fact, he tried to talk a lot of them out of it. And they followed as long as they wanted to. Many fell away. You remember those verses? Didn't bother Jesus. He didn't say, go after those guys who fell away. You deal with them. You know, kind of like David as he was on his deathbed tell Solomon to deal with about four or five people. There's nothing comparable in the ministry of Christ. The upper room is designed organically to emphasize that everyone needs to be at that point where they can find everyone else worth listening to. They discern the body. Look at 1 Corinthians 11.29 and 1 Corinthians 14. That's what he's getting at there. This is the order of God's church. At some point while eating, stop and remember that last night, Jesus breaking the bread, drinking the wine of the new covenant, inviting his family to eat and drink with him at the table, at his table until he comes. It is God's table, not the churches or the elders. That's always hilarious to me, the way elders say, I minister at the table of Jesus Christ. Well, if it is Jesus' table, why are you the one telling people who can and can't be there? Oh, I just tell them what Jesus tells them. Oh, really? See, this isn't a ritual needing correct performance by just the right person, only elders. And by the way, it is only elders in almost every denomination I can think of who can perform this. It has to be performed by the right people to be a blessing. It, it's, it's a regular practice and should be repeated in faith. It is an opportunity to reflect on our sin and the need for the righteousness of Christ. Not to discipline ourselves in, in, in place of the elders or something like that, but we come to the table. Not with a false humility holding ourselves back from it as if that act of self-flagellation accounts for anything. So though everyone is encouraged to examine themselves, the end result is not to decide whether or not to partake, but rather to partake in faith that whatever blessing or judgment God has in store at his table for his child is what you want. The church invites... It, by the way, I'm, th th this is just 1 Corinthians 11. There's nothing there about the elders doing it for you. Paul does the unbelievable thing. He tells the drunks to examine themselves. When has, everybody, when, when has anybody ever done that? See, the church invites all those who are commanded by God to come to him, which is all who call on the name of the Lord, and those unable on their own to come, whom he commands not to forbid them, but to make the path straight, to strengthen the weak knees, because they're coming to God. Make the valleys high and the mountains low. Because these are the ones we're to provide for. His little ones, the lame, the halt, the blind, the mentally handicapped, the elderly, and the children, the stranger who is within your gates. The role of the elder in this is a whole process, is the most noticeable by the fact that there is no role of the elder. Yet, Corinthians is a flagship book or letter used to defend the authority of elders to control this practice of communion and inevitably to turn it into a ritual by their seizure of power over it. Anything not a ritual is useless to a priest and those who claim priestly powers, by the way, by whatever name, they, I don't care if they call themselves elders or anything else. You act like a priest, you are a priest. You're the door. As long as you're the door, 
And you can't get away from that. As long as you are the one somebody has to come through for justification that I am a Christian, you are the door. Elders in Jesus Christ, stop and think of it that way for just a second. Throughout the evening or at any other time, the church gathers for fellowship. The issues of life are discussed privately and where appropriate corporately. There is singing and music and instruments for the gifted. People will listen to others say some hard things. Sometimes they will um, say it personally, sometimes privately. Other times it has to be brought before the, the congregation. Then they work it out like iron sharpening iron even needing to get everyone's attention. So something serious can have the wisdom of all God's people. And at that point, you can say, excuse me, if you want to listen, we got this issue we have to talk to about the people. And as they hear it, they may focus in on it. They may walk away from it. Everyone is, and by the way, both of those things are a judgment of God's people that tells you where you need to go next. Everyone is helping each other sort through all the issues of life, learning maturity, handling sin, error, philosophical disputes, theological disputes, practical disputes, offense, righteousness, blessing. And they're doing it like mature adults, confident in the word and judgment of God, not petulant children, insecure in all their ways, needing an elder to solve their problem, needing mommy, needing daddy. It's real. Then, as in any group, there are some who are really gifted at explaining things or praying for people or singing or prophesying. And at some point, everyone listens to them, explain things or pray or sing or prophesy or heal. It might even be an argument that, that everyone listens to. It all takes about two or three hours, and then they clean up. It's going to happen again. So there is no urgency in the entire service to meet an agenda. As the group grows... It naturally divides, and new groups start up. Now, it wouldn't be wrong to build a meeting house, like a church building, but administration of the petty, who controls the building, can consume God's people. With, with that warning, no matter what the size of the meeting room or its amenities, at some point, by God's grace, there must be division for new groups to begin, or something terrible will have happened. The dynamic of the Holy Spirit will have been quenched, and this branch of God's people will have therefore stopped filling the earth, stopped subduing the earth, or discipling the nations. This should drive people to their knees, to fall on their faces, humiliated at their rank hypocrisy. I'm not talking about the church growth movement. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. If you're the sort of person full of the Holy Spirit, and you're in a church group that says, we don't do anything apart from the Holy Spirit, and you're bringing other people in to say, hey, come taste and see that the Lord is good. Have supper with us. You say, wait, 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 are you going to let people take communion? No. We're going to explain to people that part of the supper, that if they go forward for that, if they partake in that, they're saying something about Jesus Christ. Don't be a hypocrite. It means something. I know more than one person who accepted Christ by going up to the communion table. Everybody's like, whoa, what's they going up there for? And it turns out that they testified to the fact that this was their first act. This was their altar call. Now, sometimes this division is not happy or friendly. But I was just talking about division. <clears throat> church needs to divide. Sometimes that division isn't happy or friendly, since it's not because the church is too full. It revolves around a serious disagreement concerning morality, doctrine, philosophy, theology, or ministry. In this case, the division may be a painful one. Each side convinced that the other side is in error, or perhaps engaged in sin. But in Christ, there is the charity that God will heal the breach, convince the sinner, correct the errant, and it's our task to love and to pray for them, not hate and resent them, 
or fear that they will unsettle the faithful. Duh! If you've done your job, then you have a congregation of people who won't be unsettled. Has that ever occurred to you? We're not talking about the church as it is today. You're right. You can't turn a heretic loose in a church like that. We're talking about the church where the elders say, you know what, our job is not to wait on tables. Our job is not to resolve disputes. Our job is not to discuss policy. Our job is to be discipling people. Hey, Bob, who are you discipling? How's it going? What can I pray for? That's what the elders say when they're talking with each other. So there shouldn't be people. Why are we afraid that they will upset the faithful? Uh, better watch out. They might upset Fred. No, man. Sick Fred on him. He knows what to say. But when this time comes, and the body of Christ deems that it's, we have some unsolvable issues here. Scripture is our final court of appeal. And now I come back to that analogy of the epoxy. Scripture is the final court of appeal. We have different ideas about what Scripture says. We're not arguing whether or not Scripture ought to be followed. We're arguing over what we think it says. Those are two very different positions. Brothers, go start your church. Go build your altar. Go reach the lost. Within a year, 20 years, 100 years, this is going to be solved. In the meantime, let's not waste our time fighting with each other. Let's spend our time w winning the lost. And if necessary, you can start the new separate fellowship that separates out the sides in the dispute and awaits fi God's final judgment, a hundred or a thousand years hence. His word is sufficient to winnow out the chaff. And that's how these two ideas of the form of worship and the confidence in the word of God and the focus of the most gifted members of our congregation being to build everyone up trust God to purify his people, deal with the dross, get them out of the way, and to grow. The ministry of God's people gathering is that sort of a place where all may come, bringing everyone they meet. There they gather people who one day, one person, one experience at a time are going to change the world. They are changing the world. They don't come to a lecturer or a special leader. They come to the people of God who are changed and eat and talk and discover ways to make it better for others. They understand service because they understand God's law and grace. Their leaders aren't spiritual bigwigs who need support. They are the, their, meters, their, their leaders are the best at meeting the needs by serving, not the best at running things, not the best at forcing everyone into a straight line and keeping them dumbed down so that everyone thinks that this is as good as it can be. Well, you can't do it any other way. Who would take care of us? They're the best at making people who can take care of themselves. The expectation is that the vision will be a normal aspect of the life of the church as it grows to fill the earth. In fact, this division to grow is why dividing for other reasons will not be harmful to the message, the truth, the witness of the church, but rather seen as a positive witness to God's ability to winnow out his people and his truth. Brother, you stay dependent on the, on, on the Holy Spirit speaking through the word, and I promise you, within 100, 200, 300, 1,000 years, you're going to find the, the, the offspring of that commitment is going to correct and fix your problems. You start saying, I don't need the Holy Spirit. I don't need the Word of God. You're going to find that 50, 100 years from now, you're over. 
But the bottom line is, do what God told you to do. Be confident in God to sort out his own people. There's nothing to fear in prying loose the teeth of the elite idea that the church is only protected by strong leaders who know better than the rest of us and go out and fight on their behalf to protect the helpless. The fact of the matter is, and this is a dirty little secret, the people those leaders are fighting, they're elders. They're the leaders of the church. They're the elite. This is what happens when you put the elite in charge. You, they, they will create an organization for elites. They will, to put it another way, the wolves will create a wolfine organization of leadership. And then it attracts wolves. And many of those wolves are wolves. And a lot of them are they're like Pumbaa said to, uh, or Timon said to Pumbaa, wait a second, our lion has teeth. So they attract a wolf to fight their wolf. It's not what God asked for. It's not what Jesus said to do. In fact, that's exactly what he said not to do. There's nothing to fear in prying loose the teeth of the elite idea that the church is only protected by strong leaders who know better than the rest of us to go out and fight in our behalf to protect the helpless, other wolves who were once leaders in the church, or maybe still are. In, in place of that whole model, that whole Gentile understanding of leadership, is the confidence that if the leaders focus on building up the congregation, they will have all the tools they need to transform the earth, and that's why you're here. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.